Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Russ McCullough, founder of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, and I also hold the Wayne Age Chair of Economics. And my partner here is the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Justin Clark. And today we're going to do a little uh, faith and free will. So that should be kind of fun. Uh, Dr. Clark's going to run us through determinism this time and kind of focus our efforts there. And this is going to be uh, part one of a, of a three-part series is what the plan is. So Justin, what do you got to say about this topic today? Okay, so uh, today we are going to be talking about one of what's typically considered to be the three positions in the debate about free will. And the position we're going to talk about today is called determinism. And as its name might suggest, determinism is the thesis that all our actions are determined, and therefore that we have no free will. And is this, so is this similar to a, a predestination argument from kind of a faith perspective that your, des your destiny is determined, basically? I think it's similar, right? Yeah. I was actually taking a look at uh, some different denominations and what they thought about uh, the free will paradox, yeah. um, as some denominations call it. And it's, it's very unclear what people mean by predestination. So it might be better to outline the philosophical position first, and then okay. we say, uh, does this sound like what any of these denominations are saying? Right. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Because I, okay. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the Calvinist and when, when I hear predestination from the little bit that I've done. But yeah, I think that's a great, great idea. Let's start with the philosophical underpinnings and then we can apply from there. So uh, before we talk about the theory, I want to talk about two interesting uh, historical cases. Or, and in this case, it's two people. So uh, the first person is Phineas Gage. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Phineas Gage, Russ. He was, no, I haven't, I haven't uh, heard of it. Well, uh, and just like you, probably most of our listeners haven't either, but he was an American railroad construction worker, and he was hammering um, rods, using a rod to pack like explosives into a hole, um, and someone had like not covered the explosives well enough, and the uh, uh, explosion went off, and it drove this six-foot metal rod through his eye socket and then out the back of his head and it landed like a hundred yards away. Um, oh my gosh. Now, uh, what the reason we remember Phineas Gage is because he survived this. Um, and there, you know, I do if you look, kind of remember the story. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if it was related. Uh, yeah. I, it does ring a bell. So if you look up <laughs> Phineas Gage, you can find pictures of him holding this rod. And what's interesting about Phineas Gage is not only that he survived, but his personality was drastically changed by this event. And not in the way where somebody might uh, have a change of personality just because they think they are so unlucky as to have a rod blown through their head, right? 
Um, <laughs> you can imagine that personality change, but this was supposed to, you know, his friend said, this is a totally different Phineas Gage. He was way angrier. He lost his temper more often. Um, he eventually got fired from the railroad. And, uh, you know, he did a bunch of damage to his frontal temporal lobe. Um, and that's the part of your brain that uh, it is a part of the brain that's involved in things like uh, monitoring your own behavior and things like that. Uh, so that's one person to think about. And the other person we want to uh, keep in our minds is Charles Whitman. And so Charles Whitman, this name might ring a bell for people. He, one morning he woke up and he killed his wife and his mother. Um, and then he got a whole bunch of guns together and climbed to the top of the University of Texas. He was the guy, he was one, you know, essentially the first school shooter. Um, and okay. So this, and what um, year, what approximate time frame are we talking for him? Uh, Whitman, let me see the date, had this up. August 1st, 1966. Okay. <clears throat> so he climbed on uh, up this tower in Texas and started shooting random people. He killed um, 11 people over something like uh, an hour and a half was eventually uh, himself shot by a civilian who had a gun on campus, I believe. And uh, what's interesting about Charles Whitman, besides the fact that, you know, he was, he did these horrific things is that before he did them, he wrote this note saying, I do not feel like myself lately. And uh, Charles Whitman was actually a very smart guy. He tested at like 139 for an IQ he wrote a suicide note and a portion of it read, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to this type of behavior. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I am supposed to be an average and reasonable, intelligent young man. However, I have been a victim to many unusual and irrational thoughts. And these thoughts constantly recur. And it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. And he eventually, in that note, went on to say, can somebody take a look at my brain after this? Um, mm. Okay, I think I remember yeah. that comment, too. I've heard a little bits of this thing, so, yeah. And when they opened up uh, Charles Whitman's head after he was killed, they found a very large tumor pressing on his amygdala, which is, mm. again, part of the um, brain that regulates fight or flight. It's just... I would just like us to keep those two stories in our head for the rest of this discussion. Um, okay. So now let's talk about free will. Um, so uh, typically when people think of free will and of freely chosen actions, they think by free will, uh, they mean something like I could have done otherwise, right? You know, when you think about, uh, you know, proposing to your wife or going over to your neighbor's house at 3 a.m. Uh, to bang on their door because they're still playing music or whatever, you know, you know, when you look back, you tend to, th you know, what we tell ourselves is, well, there was a point at which I chose to do this thing. And were it not for my choosing to do it, I wouldn't have done it. And I could have chosen to do something else. Right. Okay. So that seems to be uh, the common sense uh, definition of what free will is. And we can contrast that to things like billiard balls, 
right? When you hit a billiard ball on a table and it uh, hits another billiard ball, um, we don't think that uh, you know, when the cue ball strikes the seven ball, the seven ball has to go, okay, well, I guess I decide I'm going to head over to the pocket, right? <laughs> um, once that cue ball is sent in action, there is nothing that the seven ball can do but uh, be affected and directly in proportion to the force that was applied to it um, to go in the direction where it's, uh, you know, causally determined to, to go. So okay. we think that pool balls are causally determined. Right. No free will there. No free will. And we like to think of ourselves as uh, free in the sense that uh, we could do otherwise in the way that pool balls cannot. Okay. And we might have had, just to push this cue ball or pool ball thing a little further, we might have had some force against us, that, but that doesn't. We might have been able to do something to not head towards the pocket, even though had we just let things go, we would have went to the pocket. But we still have some things to choose on our path after the initial impact. Or am I digging way too deep into that? <laughs> are you are you talking? To, are you saying the cue ball? No, the seven ball. If I'm the seven ball. I'm thinking that the seven ball has no free will because there yes. it's total causal depending on the force that the cue ball put on it, it's going to go in the pocket. But if we're putting a personality onto the seven ball, oh, that oh, so, so we could people. like, yes, we okay. might have things impact us, but we also have choices that we can make after that maybe could, you know, not cause us to go in the pocket, even though we might go in the pocket if we just stood still and did nothing. Yes. Um, so nobody disputes that, uh, <clears throat> things do have impacts and things do constrain our behavior, right? Um, okay. The question is whether or not uh, we ever could have done otherwise. And, you know, you can be a, uh, a libertarian about free will, which is someone who believes in free will and still think that, oh, I mean, roughly 90% of our actions are, are just uh, responses and causal, right? And just uh -huh. and causally determined. But if there's any um, situations in which you legitimately could have done otherwise, um, then free will exists, right? Okay. Um, and so determinism is the thesis that there is no free will ever. That, you, that it is never the case that you could have done otherwise. Okay. So um, one way to think about uh, determinism and you know an argument you might make for determinism we can do an a priori argument and an experimental argument um, so uh let's take the a, a priori before the fact right yeah a priori means uh in philosophy <laughs> we use it to describe uh, a kind of knowledge or even a type of argument that doesn't depend on any kind of observation you can, uh, it's like a just thinking about it type of argument. Okay. Right? Um, so um, if we think about the way physics operates and physics largely operates like the billiard ball example, right? Um, this is what happens when, uh, you know, even in, in CERN, when they shoot two particles at each other, um, we think that physics is 
causally closed in the sense that um, the movement of physical particles is explained uh, totally by um, the physical measurements of those particles at any given time. Um, so um, on this view, um, this is kind of like what's called, you know, Newton's clockwork universe, that the universe operates like a machine. Um, and this is the presupposition that a lot of science takes to natural uh, behavior. Now, it is true that, um, you know, think about things like the weather. You know, what caused today's weather? Well, what caused today's weather was yesterday's weather, right? Um, yeah. And uh, today's weather is causally determined by yesterday's weather um, uh, for the most part. Um, There's a causal chain, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, time. you you can look through and say, you know, for each time slice, the, the cause of the weather at that time slice was the, uh, the cause of the weather at the time right before it. Um, now, we're not very good at predicting the weather, um, especially in Kansas. Um, but that doesn't, just because we aren't very good at predicting it, doesn't mean that it wasn't uh, causally determined. Does that make sense? So those sure. are I two... Mean, Thinking about uncertainty is where I go with that because the weathermen and economists share that in common that uh, we're not very good at predicting the economy, but we still do it. And we, we'd like to think that there's a, a possibility of getting better and better predictions. Yeah. So there's two different kinds of um, uh, uncertainty uh, and, or indeterminism. There's um, epistemic indeterminism, where uh, something could be one way or it could be the other way, and and we don't know. Um, or there's metaphysical indeterminism, which means uh, it it is uh, it's possible for things to be one way and possible for them to be the other way, um, just because uh, that's the nature of uh, just because those things are. Indeterminate. So a way to, to think about this is, you know, if, if you get kidnapped and you're thrown in the back of a car um, and you're, uh, you're taken somewhere, you know, it's parked, uh, you might think to yourself, uh, well, this, this isn't so bad. I, they might have driven me to the beach. <laughs> uh, I could be at the beach, right? Um, and there what you're saying is, you know, for all I know, I might be at the beach, right? It's an epistemic uh, uncertainty. Um, on the other hand, you know, you might uh, be uh, getting a huge fight with your wife or whatever and say, uh, uh, you know, and then you to yourself later on, you go, oh, I could, uh, I could have married Deborah, right? And what you're saying there isn't, for all I know, maybe I did marry Deborah. You know, <laughs> uh, what you're saying is, at one point, it was possible for me to have married Deborah instead of uh, okay, okay. my wife. Does that make All sense? Right. Yeah, it's almost like looking backwards versus looking forward in my mind. Like if you're in the trunk, what the future might look like is I might be at the beach. But with the Deborah thing, you're looking backwards and saying I could have had a different reality um, had I chosen Deborah or whatever. 
Yeah, and these kind of, I mean, these kinds of uncertainties have different emotions with them, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. grief versus, uh, you know, um, hope or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, determinism doesn't mean that we are predictable in the same way that we don't, you know, we might not be able to predict the weather, right? It just means that given the state of the universe, when we were born, there is no other way that our life could have unfolded, but for the way that it did. Okay. And the argument for that is, well, you know, you can look at at any decision that you take that's that you consider to be, you know, a free decision. And we can take your brain state before that decision gets made. You know, if we had a perfect picture of uh, what your brain was doing, and then we just watched your brain kind of operate, and then we watched uh, that brain eventually send out electrical signals to your muscles, all we see happening is pure biology and physics. It is causally closed in the sense, same sense that the time slices of the weather was, where each thing follows necessarily from the thing that happened before it. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. That looks like a cliffhanger to take our uh, break. So, because I see you now, you're going back to the brain that we're going to bring old Phineas and uh, uh, Charles maybe back into this uh, picture with some brain augmentation. So, with that, we'll be back shortly. Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, we're back. And so Justin's leading us through uh, some of this determinism and uh, continue on with we're at the brain part where I was thinking we might get back to old Charles and Phineas here at some point, but uh, continue on, Dr. Clark. Okay, so yeah, to sum up the, the a priori argument in favor of determinism, it is just that the physical world is causally determined. And, you know, the best evidence we have suggests that our brains are what regulate our actions and brains are 
uh, part of the physical world. And um, if you look at a brain operate, you'll be able to see that, you know, at no point does it seem like there's, uh, you know, something that um, just happens for no reason or some outside force that comes in and, and presses uh, on the brain or something like that. So uh, the argument is, look, the physical world is causally determined. We are part of the physical world. Therefore, we are also causally determined. Um, now, there's, uh, there's been a bunch of experimental uh, psychological work about freedom of the will, too. And um, there's been, for as much work as there's been done, there's money, uh, much more disagreement about how to interpret it. But one way to interpret this work is as uh, supporting the argument for determinism. So the classic experiment is one uh, by Libet. Um, there, it's just called the Libet experiment. And what Libet had people do was um, he had this clock running in front of people, and then he put a button in front of people. And he said, uh, press that button anytime you like. Um, so you decide when to press that button. But I want you to note where the clock hand is right when you actually make your decision to press the button. And he had these people strapped up, uh, you know, to, uh, yeah, whatever uh, the doctor. Some sort of brainwave yeah, gizmo, so, yeah, um, space age equipment. Yeah. Uh, so he's tracking all their brainwaves. And, you know, they've run this experiment a bunch. And uh, Labette says, look, for every time when people uh, report, right when they think they're, right when they make the decision to press, press the button, um, there is activity going on in your brain that spikes right before that. And that activity seems causally related to your pressing the button. So Labette's thesis is your, uh, that your brain knows when you are going to press the button before you consciously know that you're going to uh, press the button. Um, and uh, so since your will, your active will to press the button um, is causally uh, occurs in time after your brain initiated the uh, events which lead to the button pressing, your will cannot be the cause of your pressing the button. Uh, what, uh, what we experience uh, as freedom of the will is really this kind of psychological justification that we tell ourselves. Uh, we just have this experience of uh, our will pressing the button. Um, but uh, since we can determine with uh, great degrees of accuracy um, when you are going to press the button prior to you deciding to press the button, uh, then therefore you didn't press the button uh, the will, your will was not the cause of your pressing of the button. It was merely this kind of ethereal. I have to ask, I, I'm not sure, I'm a little foggy on that one. So why wouldn't it be that when you decide to do it, that was actually the brain starting, and then there's this physical manifestation of going through the motions and pressing the button? You Did don't I miss something on that part or not? Yeah, you report what time you decide to press the button. It's oh. not that uh, he watches you press the button. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Okay. And so it's, uh, it's a difference between your brain's activity and what you report, not oh. what the observer So you're watching is. the clock and you can even maybe make the prediction that, of when it is, and, but before it happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, All right. Now, uh, one of the things that's, that was interesting in, in, uh, in this experiment is uh, Labette actually also showed that subjects can uh, stop that process once it starts. So even though they can predict with great accuracy that you're going to press the button when that thing spikes, in some cases, uh, agents or people people can stop that process once it starts. So mm. Labette's conclusion was you do not have free will, but we, we have a little bit of free won't. Ah, hmm, okay. Uh, free won't, yeah. yeah. So that is, that is uh, sounding like a Martin Luther argument, bondage of the will or something of uh, uh, something along those lines. But And also just to be clear, if you have free won't, then in the philosophical sense, you also have free will. Right? You have there's free some, will. Yeah. yeah, there's something that you <laughs> that uh, you know you're doing that you otherwise wouldn't have. But um, so well, yeah, yeah, since uh, I, since I brought up Martin Luther, I just um, he had this battle back when he was reforming uh, what we know as Protestantism now, uh, breaking away from the Catholic Church. So some of the other leaders were Erasmus and. Um, He's basically arguing that this is how it works. God created human beings with free will. And, uh, you know, that basically we can choose good or evil, choose God or not choose God, that we're completely, you know, that's the way it was by design. And Luther's comments back was the bondage of the will. And so it's not like he was um, denying that we can choose, you know, what we want to eat for breakfast. Um, that there's there's certainly choices, but ultimately you can't choose God. You can't choose to do good kind of capital G. Um, you can't choose your own righteousness. And so this really plays into the idea of works in the Christian faith as well as other faiths uh, for that matter. But, you know, can you work your way to heaven? Uh, Luther says, absolutely not. Like you have no chance of it because you are a sinful being and living in a world of sin and you can't choose your way up to God. So therefore, there's no merit with your works of doing good deeds. Um, you, you, will, you will likely, be, you should be doing those good deeds, or it'll just be part of your nature if you have uh, been redeemed in, in Christ. But um, you can't choose them on your own. And so the bondage of the will was one of his big pieces that uh, I've listened to some other podcasts on that I think kind of plays into to some of these arguments. And that ultimately i think created part of the schism in the protestant faiths of um going a few different directions uh early on in the church yeah so that uh i think you're you're right that it does sound a little bit like the Libet. and um and since and i this is i think the cor the correct picture theo as far as what the theology is supposed to say that you're right that um uh the predestination I think most people do think that, um, you know, that you can choose your, your breakfast cereal. Um, so mm -hmm. really, um, that's, this is just an argument about what we have free will over. And, um, 
and uh, assuming that we, of course, do have free will, but saying, uh, you know, that's, it might be narrower than you thought, or there might be some aspects um, which you don't have free will over. Yeah. And the, on the Calvinist side, I think the, the predestination argument, which is kind of similar, is you don't know, as a Christian, you don't know if you're part of the chosen people, the predestined people. So you kind of go through life trying to figure out if you're part of the chosen uh, group. And that is kind of how they justify that. Well, we still have free will. We still have choices, but um, we're, we're all predestined. It's going to be what it's going to be. Something along those lines. I'm not the, I don't, I'm not strong in the theological arguments there, but they've maybe do enough to be speaking dumbly on this podcast. <laughs> Well, uh, if determinism is right, then you were going to do that anyway, right? There we go. Yes, yes, it was, it was bound, bound to be. So uh, maybe we should just say really quickly uh, why determinism is so radical and what, uh, what's at stake. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so if determinism is true, then there is no point at your life where you could have done anything other than what you could have done. Um, we all think that um, it's that what uh, Charles Whitman did was horrible and you know a, a tragedy, right? But if determinism is true, then we are all Charles Whitman. Um, we are all just at the mercy of our brain chemistry. Um, it's not the case that in Charles Whitman, you know, some, you know, this thing took over, you know, his brain and his brain overrode his decisions. Uh, there is no option for any of us to do anything differently than what we currently do um, and what we have done. And if you rolled back the universe and let it roll forward again, everything would happen exactly the same. Um, now, um, that's radical because most of our conceptions of morality and a lot of our legal categories depend on this distinction between uh, acts freely chosen and acts that we are compelled to do. Especially um, in America. Yeah, yeah especially in America. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they read, when you find out that Whitman had this tumor, they go like, oh, it's not his fault because uh -huh. his brain was doing it. Um, right. But if we are all Whitmans, then nothing is any of our faults. Yeah, because uh, so the argument goes, uh, moral responsibility depends on a subject's being uh, the author of their acts in the sense that they could have done it differently. Which makes you look differently at like the criminal justice system, even right when it wasn't their fault that they did it. It's just they had no other choice. It kind of changes the tune on a lot of things that we probably take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of people who are determinists uh, also are uh, criminal justice uh, reformers, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, if they're right, then, you know, it's... it's uh, they were determined not... to help the people get out of jail <laughs> and they were determined to do another crime yeah, or whatever. It's, well, <laughs> it's like... Uh, it's like, what's the life worth living type of thing? Well, uh, I was going to say that, you know, these uh, determinists who are prison reformers, um, that doesn't make them good people because they were going to be prison reformers anyway, if determinism is correct, <laughs> right? Uh, so, right? I mean, it's, so it's the amount of 
how much of our everyday intuitions depend on, uh, you know, we just take it for granted that determinism isn't true. Yeah. Um, so well, I was going to ask you that, like what in your profession, I mean, are there really determinists or is it just a, a kind of a thought exercise that we go through to kind of set the stage for what we think is the right thing being some form of free will? I would say, I mean, there's a lot of determinists. Um, really? Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, if you think there's a lot of uh, philosophers who are determinists and the percentage of philosophers who are determinists is dwarfed by the perce percentage of um, brain scientists and uh, psychologists who are uh, determinists. Mm. So that's kind of their, it is what it is. And this is what everything's basically explained through physics and whatever, right? I uh, guess that's kind of another way to look at it. Yeah, it, it is the result of taking the scientific worldview and applying it to human behavior, right? Yeah, um, yeah. When we use the scientific method, we are looking at looking for causes and necessary and sufficient conditions for things. Yeah. And we are uh, concerned with only observable behavior. So, right. Um, right. Which, yeah, kind of brings us to the kind of the heart of our podcast of what faith is. Faith is having a belief without having all of that evidence or scientific hardcore that there's a there's a gap there that you a leap of faith so to speak yeah we should we should do one on uh kierkegaard's leap of faith sometime yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely because that was the other that was one of you and i had that early discussion on kierkegaard because i've got that other podcast that i listen to the thinking fellows whereas where i'm getting some of my Erasmus and Luther's debate was uh, there's another one where they talk quite a bit about Kierkegaard. So that might be a fun one to do. So, yeah. All right. So any final thoughts here on determinism or is this a good place to, to wrap for today for part one before we go into part two and you can maybe set the stage a little bit for what part two would look like in terms of what we'd be discussing. So uh, for part two, we're going to be talking about libertarianism, which is the view that free will in the sense that we were using it in this discussion that you could have done otherwise does exist. Mm -hmm. And libertarianism in the philosophy of uh, mind and in, in the free will discussion is totally distinct from political libertarianism. And it's a shame that they have the same name because uh, okay. it's confusing, but um, yeah. So the other thing I would say is uh, we just presented one case today and there are three cases to be made. And these cases are, I mean, most people think they are mutually exclusive and jointly exhaustive, right? The, these are, uh, you know, the three options to take. So, um, so I, 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 sorry, I, when, when you said you kind of threw me that most in some professions, a lot of people are determinists. Um, I suppose there's still room for God with determinism. It's just that everything's determined or is that more of an atheist type of argument traditionally, or does it play to both sides? Uh, I think it's, it can play to both sides. So a okay. lot of people, I mean, some people try to explain God's omniscience by um, appeal to determinism. Say, so, well, God knows uh, what's going to happen because it's predetermined, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he set everything in motion and, you know, or right. he sits outside time or whatever, you know. Um, this gets us into the why, then 
why does God do let bad things happen or evil happen? Right. Right. I mean, this could, yeah. we could get thick into the weeds right away. We're just right on the edge of getting into that uh, area, which is, which is a pretty thick place that we certainly don't have time to dip our toe into even today, but it just got me thinking that that's the next step where you go. If, if you're in the God determinism camp. Yeah. Uh, so that raises the problem of evil, right? Yeah. Um, which yeah. is what you were talking about. And then I'm, on the other side, some people say, no, no, God gave us free will. And then there's the, the paradox of free will, um, which is how is God omniscient? Um, if, uh, you know, he, if there are decisions which are undetermined, right? How does God have knowledge of things that, um, that aren't determined to be one way or the other. And they don't call it a paradox because there's an easy answer to it. So there's a bunch of difficult ways to, um, to answer this, but. uh, um, Well, great. I I love this stuff. So we're, we're in for a fun ride, I think on the next couple episodes. So I'll, I might even get into Russ's theory on time and outside of time type of thing, which I've mentioned in some previous podcasts a long time ago at different points, but uh, uh, should be fun. So, On behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope you can jump into a five-star rating for us to help us rise in the ranks. And uh, we do have a little donate button on the GortneyInstitute.org website. And uh, we appreciate your support and just listening. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.